The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Julian Martinez. I'm the associate pastor here at Fellowship, and, and we love it here, right? I love the fellowship family that we have. I love the, the direction that our church is going in. Just everything around that. We get together. We have a good time. We study the word of God together, and we live life in Christ-centered community, and that's what it's all about. Amen? So over the last several weeks, I think it's like seven weeks, uh, Pastor Daniel has been on a sermon series called Move 2021. And when we talked about the gather, grow, give, and go, and how all of these things come together for us to then do the things that we've been talking about, right? We've been talking about love God, love others, make disciples. And Move 2021 was a vision, a statement, kind of here's who we're going to be, and here's how we're going to accomplish that, right? And we got that from John 20, 21, where Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And we learned that Jesus was sending them out to the mission of witnessing and making disciples, right? That is what God sent Jesus to do. When God sent Jesus to this earth, it was to seek and save those which were lost. And we learned about our responsibility to that mission, that just as Jesus had been given this mission, we too have this mission. This is what Jesus was sent to do. This was his mission, and Jesus was devoted to that mission. This is the title of the sermon this morning, Devoted to the Mission. Have you ever seen those movies, Mission Impossible? They've made like, I don't know, six or seven of them. There's a bunch of them. And, and, you know, they're relatively clean, and those are really good date night movies for us. You know, we don't like going and watching a lot of filth. But, but these movies are pretty good, and they're exciting. They kind of keep you on the edge of your seat the whole time. And it's all based around this character, Ethan Hunt, right? And Ethan Hunt is this, I don't know what you call him, some spy, secret agent type guy, and he works for this organization uh, that's maybe funded by the government, but the government really doesn't have any control over them. And, and they go into all these impossible situations, right? That's why the show's called Mission Impossible, because every time they run into some situation, it's like there's no way they're going to get out of this. There's no way they can accomplish this mission that has been given to them. Um, I don't know, one of the last ones, right, I remember in the helicopter ride, the clock is kick, ticking down to like 15 seconds. And there's like 15 minutes in the movie to where they're fighting and falling off of a helicopter and the 15 seconds never <laughs> expires. But, but I love those movies, right? I love the action and everything. And I was watching like part three the other day and, and the idea was there was this colleague of, Hunt, uh, of, of Ethan Hunt, right? She had been captured and Ethan Hunt was kind of semi-retired and they called him into this mission. And, and, and so he's like, I got to go get my colleague, you know. And so then they, they assemble this team, there's four of them, and they go to this warehouse and, and there's all kinds of bad guys. There's probably 50 bad guys and cameras and it's like a fortress at this warehouse. And so going into this situation, it's just like, that's impossible, how do these four guys, and one's on a computer, one's not even like active combat. He's, you know, they go through this mission and he gets in there and he runs into danger and, you know, there's, there's just fire going everywhere and shooting guns and machine guns is really cool. And, uh, and he gets her, right, and he extracts her and he runs into danger to then fulfill the mission. And Ethan always understands the danger of the mission before taking it, right? He understands what he's getting into. Why? Because of the message that's given to him. Okay, he'll look up on some little device and it'll say, Ethan Hunt, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is dot, dot, dot. And so Ethan Hunt, going into this impossible situation, understands what the mission is and runs into danger knowing the consequences that the mission could maybe not be fulfilled. Now, Ethan Hunt is a fictional character who doesn't exist, neither do the situations he gets himself into. But there are like real life scenarios of heroes who have gone into battle and have uh, really given their all to then uh, uh, complete a mission, right? Uh, I think of Staff Sergeant John Bassalone. Uh, he was a real life guy and he was awarded the Medal of Honor, which is the military's highest honor that you can receive. Let me just tell you a little story about John Bassalone. So on October 24th, 
1942, during the Battle of Henderson Field, his unit came under attack by a regiment of 3,000 soldiers from the Japanese Sendai Division, using machine guns, grenades, and mortars against the American heavy machine guns. Bassalone commanded two sections of machine guns, uh, which fought for the next two days until only Bassalone and only uh, two other Marines were left standing. So there's three of them. Remember, there's 3,000 of the other guys. Despite their supply lines having been cut off by enemies who had infiltrated the rear, Bassalone fought through hostile ground to resupply his heavy machine gunners with urgently needed supplies. Bassalone moved an extra gun into position and maintained continual fire against the incoming Japanese forces. He then repaired and manned another machine gun, holding the defense line until replacements arrived. When the last of the ammunition ran out shortly before dawn the second day, Bassalone, using his pistol and a machete, held off the Japanese soldiers until uh, attacking his position. By the end of the engagement, Japanese forces opposite the Marine lines had been virtually annihilated. What a cool story, right? Two other guys, they fend off 3,000 of the enemy, and at the end of it all, he's holding... A he's holding a pistol and a machete, and when day breaks, they're the only ones standing left. That is cool, right? That is someone who knows the mission and is devoted to the mission. They were not going to allow their stronghold to be overtaken. They were devoted. Now, John Bassalone did eventually die in World War II uh, in another mission. But he was devoted. He was devoted to the mission. And so I think it's fair to say that over the last several weeks, we've come to this understanding of what our mission is. Correct? We don't need to reiterate that. Our mission is to, should we choose to accept it, is to seek and save the lost. Right? We understand the why, the where, and there's no mistaking our position as a church corporately to, to accomplish this mission. We've been given all the information necessary to effectively complete the mission. And so the question this morning is, after seven weeks of understanding intellectually what our mission is and what that looks like, is how devoted are we to this mission? Because you can have a mission, not be devoted to it, and get nowhere. What I, can I get an amen? Isn't that right? If you're not devoted to the mission, then nothing gets accomplished. So how devoted are we to the mission? This morning we're going to be in John chapter 11. And at first glance, <clears throat> it doesn't seem like this is a message about being devoted to a mission or a mission at all. Uh, John chapter 11 dialogues how Jesus came and rose Lazarus from the dead. And we're kind of real familiar with that scripture. But we're actually not going to get into that part. We're just going to read uh, verses 1 through 10 this morning uh, as we study along. And so let me just kind of set the stage here of what's going on in John chapter 11. Jesus had been teaching his disciples. He had been leading them through Judea, Samaria. You remember John chapter 4, the woman at the well. He gives salvation to the Samarian people. And then uh, he, he's, he's coming along. And at some point in Judea, a couple years before his death, he heals a guy at the pool of Bethsaida. And he does this on the Sabbath day. And the religious leaders are very upset about that. They don't like that this guy was healed on the Sabbath day. Forget the fact that this guy got healed miraculously. It happened on the Sabbath day. They don't like that. So there becomes all this buzz about Jesus. And the next year at the next festival, there's a buzz as Jesus comes in because of what he had did a year prior. And so what does Jesus do, just like Jesus would? On the Sabbath, he heals another guy who's blind. He actually like spits into the ground rubs mud on this guy's eyes, and he can see. And so now the religious leaders are really up that, that Jesus, first off, had the audacity to work on the Sabbath a year ago, and that he knows they're upset about it. And now Jesus, again on the Sabbath, heals this other guy. And so we're two years, two and a half years out of that, and there's all this buzz about Jesus, right? There's all this buzz about this Jesus guy and him coming there, and, and he runs into trouble along the way. Actually, at the end of this chapter, they're going to come together with a consorted effort to kill Jesus, right? We just read about that this morning in Sunday school. They're going to come together, and they say, we got to do something. Here's Sadducees, Pharisees. They can't agree on anything. They agree on one thing. Jesus got to die. They're breaking the commandment to then fulfill their, you know, selfish desires of killing Jesus. 
But that wasn't new because all throughout the book of John, we see that this was the case. John chapter 7, verse 1. After Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. John chapter 7, verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. John chapter 8, verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. John 10, 31. Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. So here's the climate. Here's the scene we're setting up as we enter into John chapter 11, right? That, that they're actively trying to kill Jesus, and, and there's this, all this buzz about him. Enter chapter 11. Let's read verses 1 through 3. Now, a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary his, and his sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, this is the very first moment we're introduced to Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus in the book of John. Now, the Synoptic Gospels, uh, they, they talk about Mary and Martha and about Lazarus. And in chapter 12, John has given us a preview of what's going to happen. Yes, Mary comes, anoints Jesus' feet with her hair, washes it with this expensive nard, and he says, this is the same people. The same Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were like best friends of Jesus, okay? They spent time together. Every time Jesus was in Bethany, he was at their house. He had meals there to where he would conversate and teach them, and so they were very well acquainted with who Jesus is. Now, I got a lot of close friends. Many of them are sitting right here in this church. I, and I have friends all over the United States, and I got some really, really close friends. Um, and it would be an automatic decision, I would think, that if one of my close friends were to inquire of me something that I could handle, that I would be there on the spot, right? We've had those situations, actually. I got stuck in the mud one time, and Daniel came and got me out on his day off. Uh, uh, and, and it's just like stuff like that, right? We're, we're always doing stuff like that, but because we love each other, because we're friends, because we're good friends, right? Um, I'm not going to call some guy I barely know that I just met this morning and be like, hey, can you come get me out of the mud? You know, that's not the way it works. Uh, but but here, here they are inquiring of, of Jesus, and we can rightly assume that the response that Mary and Martha are going to get, they're certain of, Right? We can assume this. Why else would they, would, they, would they go through the trouble of communicating to Jesus that um, his best friend is under this physical condition if they don't assume that Jesus is going to drop everything and come to the aid of Lazarus? Would you agree on that? Or, because if that's not the case, why send the letter? Why send the message that Lazarus is sick? But they are assuming that Jesus is going to do something about it, right? Right? This family has seen Jesus do this very thing. They're familiar with the miracles that Jesus has performed. And Martha even vocalizes that Jesus, will, that Jesus can do whatever he asks God, God will grant Jesus. Right? She says that in verse 22. Yet even I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. This is what Martha says uh, to Jesus. But what is Jesus' response? He gets, this, he gets this notification, hey, Lazarus, your friend, the one you love, the one whom loves you is, is dying. He's, 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 he's ill. He's going to die. Obviously, that's the situation. Here's what Jesus says, uh, verse 4 through 6. He says, when, when Jesus heard it, he said, the sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha, his sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place that he was. There's a couple of things perplexing here in this verse as it pertains to our situation, okay? I'll, get, I'll go ahead and give you the spoiler because we're not going to get that far. Lazarus dies, all right? <laughs> spoiler alert. If you're reading John chapter 11, Lazarus does die. And, and he's dead for four days by the time Jesus gets there. He's, he's already been dead four days. And, and Jesus comes and he raises him from the dead. And it's this very big symbolic understanding of what's to come when Jesus it, uh, dies and is crucified and is raised again. Now, if Lazarus dies, he, he's dead, 
right? If Lazarus dies, which it's very clear as we read in Scripture that he did die. He did physically die. And even after Jesus raised him from the dead, Lazarus would physically die again, right? Because I can't go visit Lazarus today. He's not alive. Jesus raised him from the dead, but yet Lazarus would die again. So then why does Jesus make this statement? Why does he say this sickness will not end in death if it is certain that Lazarus not only dies, but he dies again sometime later? What is Jesus trying to say here, right? We know because of the conversation that Jesus has with Martha that, and by what Jesus declares later himself that Jesus is speaking of a, spiritual, or sorry, of a physical death, not a spiritual death. I mean, let me reverse that. Jesus is talking about physical death, not spiritual death. It is a spiritual significance that he's saying this sickness will not end in death. Why do we know that? Because look at what he says later in verse 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? If you've known any good saint of the Lord who has died and is no longer with us, then you understand well, even because of Lazarus, that Jesus here is not speaking of a physical death. Can we agree on that? He's saying, if you die physically, you will not die spiritually, and everyone who believes in the resurrection will live on and not die spiritually speaking. So this is, this is what he's saying here. This is what he means. And Jesus, because he's Jesus, he knows that Lazarus will indeed die, okay? This is how bad the situation is. This is how sick Lazarus is, that they have to inquire of Jesus. I'm sure if Lazarus had a little cold or a headache, they weren't going to bother Jesus with that. We don't know how sick he was, but we know it ended in his death, and we know it was so serious that they communicated to Jesus, we need you now because Lazarus will die. So verse 6, so when he heard he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place that he was. Why? Isn't that kind of weird? Isn't that kind of weird that when I called Daniel to come and get me out of the mud, he didn't wait two days? <laughs> right? You're supposed to be like Jesus. No, I'm joking. But what? why? Okay? If I, if I send somebody, please, if I call you in a couple of weeks and say, man, I really need you, this is going to end in death. Please don't say, oh, i got to wait a couple days and think about it. I don't want to hear that, okay? And this is what Jesus did. He knows Lazarus is going to die. Jesus knows it. He knows he's going to physically die. And he says, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait two days. Why does he do this? And it, he says this, but it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I only have two points this morning, so we're done really quick. Um, Two points, right? And the first point is, I want us to understand this concept that God's glory, okay, God's glory, however it comes, should be our first priority. I, I, I wrote it that way on purpose. God's glory, which is the most important thing, right? The most important thing is God's glory. However it comes should be our first priority. Not if we agree with it, it should be our first priority. But however Jesus lays it out, however God lays his will and his glory out, is how we should accept it as a first priority. Sometimes, and most often I, I believe, or I've come to experience, God's glory and the things he receives glory out of is not comfortable and it's hard for us to understand. Right? God will receive glory out of things that we don't understand why he used that to receive glory out of. I'm going to tell you about a family I know. And um, I asked this family if I could have permission to tell their story. They, uh, they're a family from here in town, and they experienced this tragedy. Their son was killed in a tragic accident, um, and, and it was devastating. It was a son, a twin, and, uh, and, and one of the twins died tragically. And at this moment, they didn't know anything about Jesus. They didn't know anything about salvation or anything. This one teen's death led to an entire family being saved. Literally, an entire family. Like, like seven people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ out of this tragedy. And the testimony of this family, as they have put it out there publicly, is 
Had this not happened the way it did, God would not have been glorified through the salvation that happened. And so they understood that through the horrible situation, God used that for his glory, and they thank God because of it. How difficult is that? Okay? How difficult is that? I can tell you right now, I don't want God to use that in my life. I'll just be transparent and honest with you. I would pray, please, God, don't use that to glorify yourself through me. But that would be a wrong prayer. Why? Because God's glory, however it comes, should be my first priority. Should be all of our first priority. No matter how it comes, God's glory should be our first priority. So so we're not always going to understand it in the moment. But this is obviously the case for Mary and Martha. Okay? They do not understand that God will be glorified through this. And it's obvious because when Jesus approaches them, both of them say, had you been here, my brother would still be alive. Right? Martha meets him first halfway. She, she says that, had you been here, my brother would be alive. When he sees Mary, she repeats the exact same thing. And so Jesus hears this news. Lazarus is going to die. Your best friend is dying. He's going to die. Yet Jesus stays away for the glory of God. And let's read on. Verse 7 and 8. Then after, uh, after he said to the, uh, then after, after that, after the two days of them staying away, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you. Are you going there again? Now, <clears throat> As we work through this narrative, it's very interesting to see that Jesus stays away for as long as he did, right? After two days, Jesus and his disciples did not go off to Bethany where Lazarus was. They go to Judea. What's in Judea? The disciples just said it. Wait, we just left Judea, and they tried to stone you there. Okay, I don't know if you've ever uh, researched stoning it was a very barbaric process, okay? Stoning was not, I'm going to pick up this fist-sized rock and hurl it at you till you die. Literally, stoning was, let me pick up this boulder here, as heavy as I can manage, and crush you with it over and over and over again, and all the people would do it. And so that's the scene, right? As they start picking up these rocks to hurl them at Jesus, Jesus escapes, and his disciples remember that day, okay? And they say, wait a second. Lazarus is dying. We're not going to be- we're going to Judea. Why are we going there? What's the deal with that? And this seems off, right? And if I'm completely honest this morning, this question from the, dis- the disciples seems very justifiable to me. Okay? <laughs> very justifiable. Like, can I speak up, Jesus? Because I don't want to die of stoning death, please. Right? You're telling me we're going back to the place to where we literally just fled from. We just read that there was all this hostility in Judea, and there was even an attempt on Jesus' life. So why would you, A, go to where you're not wanted, and B, go to where they're actively trying to kill you? This doesn't seem like a very logical move, especially to the disciples, because up to this point, these men had not considered dying for the cause, right? We know that. We know that they had not considered yet dying for the cause. We know this because when we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, when they're trying to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? He comes out and he's trying to chop this guy's heads off and he, he hits their ear, right? He's just a bad shot. He hits their ear and Jesus says, hey, who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And so, so up until the very moment when Jesus is captured, Peter is thinking in his mind, we will go down fighting because we're not going to die here today. So in other words, Jesus says, let's go over here to Judea where all the hostility is. And his, his disciples speak up and say, well, I don't know if you remember or not, but, you know, there is trouble there. They literally just tried to stone you. And instead of avoiding danger, Jesus runs towards it. I want you to think about that for a second. Instead of avoiding danger, Jesus runs toward it. Why? Because he's devoted to the mission. Jesus runs towards danger because he's devoted to the mission. Look at everything going on in Jesus' life. His best friend is dying or dead, okay? 
His disciples, they're probably afraid. They don't trust him. They don't want to go to Judea because they're going to be killed. No one at this point understands the mission, right? No one at this point, if you're one of his disciples, truly understands the large scale of the mission, that Jesus is going to die, that all 12 of them will eventually die with the exception of John. I mean, he dies too, but they're all martyred, okay? At this moment, they don't understand the scope of what's fixing to happen. Who are they following? They're following a religious leader to their understanding, the Messiah, somebody who's going to lead to salvation, not lead to a certain death. And so, but Jesus understands this, and instead of fleeing, Jesus runs towards the opposition because he's devoted to the mission. And you might say this morning, oh, yeah, but hey, that's Jesus, right? Have you ever heard somebody say that? I've had people say it to me. So like, oh, yeah, I can't do that. I'm not Jesus. You know, like, hold on a second, right? I'm not Jesus. You'd be half right in that statement. You're not Jesus. But you'd be wrong in saying that God can't send you and use you for a purpose the way he did Jesus. Because that's exactly what he did. He sent us for the same mission here that he sent Jesus. Did you know? that we have the exact same resources that Jesus had while he was here on this earth. Jesus was 100% God. He was 100% man, but he did not dip into his divinity to live here as a human on earth. And we know this because of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It says, Adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the cross. Now, hear me out. I understand that this understanding of God and man can be very complex, and we might not have all the answers. What I'm not saying is that Jesus was not divine. Okay, because people have taken that and said, you see, he wasn't God on earth. He absolutely was God on earth. However, Jesus did not use his divinity to live out his mission here on earth. And John Piper really explains this well, so I'm just going to let him do it. He says, I think just as the term from uh, form of God in verse 6 does not mean less than God because of the phrase equality with God. In the same way, the phrase form of a servant and likeness of man in verse 7 do not mean less than human, but rather equal with all humans. This is a real human nature. The upshot of it is that Christ is very God and very man. Okay? So why, why does this matter? What does this mean as it pertains to what we're reading in this passage? Jesus is going through everything that he went through, and his, his decision to be devoted to the mission is not a decision to then selfishly live his human desires because he would have had them. He would have had the choice to live in a human desire, but rather he risked everything from the mission for the glory of God the Father. Again, Jesus had the same resources that we've been given today. Jesus had the Holy Spirit. He relied on the Holy Spirit to get him through things. We too have been given the Holy Spirit. We read that in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. When the Spirit comes upon you, you will have power. We have that power. The same Holy Spirit Jesus used, we use. Jesus had the scriptures, okay? Right here, we have the scriptures. We read the same exact scriptures that Jesus read. Did you know that? The whole entire Old Testament is the same Old Testament that Jesus read. Jesus used the scriptures, and Jesus used prayer. He went to God through prayer and communicated with the Father. And when the veil was torn, we too can communicate with the Father. These are the same things given to live out the mission. Remember, Jesus was teaching, constantly, constantly teaching his disciples what they needed because he would not be with them forever. And the understanding, the mission comes before everything else, is the object lesson here. Okay, as they've, as they've gone off to Bethany on the other side of the Jordan and they hear this news of Lazarus and they, instead of going to Bethany, they head to Judea, the object lesson that he's trying to teach them is that the mission, the mission is above everything else. 
The mission is above my dying friend. The mission is above my selfish desires to live out my life on this earth as, as few as the years are. The mission is what's most important, and Jesus is showing them that here. Verse 8 again, Rabbi, Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going there again. Jesus' response in this next passage has probably become my favorite Bible passage in all the Bible. Really. Because of the depth that it gives us. Look at what he said. What does he respond to them when they said, well, hold up. They just tried to stone you. Verse 9 and 10. Jesus says, aren't there 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. Point number two that I want to make is that devotion to the mission requires sacrifice. Devotion to the mission requires sacrifice. If I want to lose weight, I have to sacrifice eating tacos with Daniel and, you know, donuts and whatever else and get on the treadmill. I got to sacrifice some of that stuff. I'm not willing to do that. But, okay, (laughs) devotion, devotion requires sacrifice. Devotion to the mission requires sacrifice. In the day that Jesus lived, the Jewish people split the day into 12 hours, okay? You had pretty much after wintertime, you had 12 hours during the day to get your work done, and then you had 12 hours in the night. And Back then, there were no spotlights and heavy lanterns or anything like that. If, if, if you didn't get done with anything you were going to get done during the day, you could not do it at night. It was just too dark. So they lived their lives as during the day I get my work done, and during the night I don't work. That's just the way it worked for them. Now, what kind of work is Jesus talking about here? As in typical fashion, he's speaking spiritually, is he not? That Jesus was using this in a metaphorical sense. Spiritually, there was only a certain amount of time to do this mission on earth. Now, now listen to how deep this is, okay? That he says, don't you know there's only 12 hours in the day? And when daytime is over, there's no more work to be done. While I'm alive, he's saying, I got to work for the mission to glorify God. And when I'm dead, then my work is done. But while I'm alive... And while I have time here on this earth, that's what I'm going to be about. That's what he's saying here, right? Jesus lived to be about 33 years old. We're not 100% certain on, you know, the exact age, but we'll go with 33 years. Because that's just what every scholar says. It's 33 years. We'll use that as a, you know, object lesson this morning. When you take 33 years and divide it into months, then days, and we won't get into the Jewish calendar versus the current calendar because there's no time for all that, plus it doesn't matter. So when you do that, for time's sake, there are 12,045 uh, 12, days in 33 years. That's how many days you have in 33 years. That is 289,080 hours in 33 years. So you got 289, 290,000 roughly. We cut that in half, right, because you're not going to work during the night. You cut that in half. And that leaves you with 144,540 days, or sorry, hours that you have, workable hours. Now, not to get too technical, but we can obviously assume that a lot of that work is not going to get done in your uh, childhood, as you're a toddler, as you're a baby, as you're growing up. You're not going to do a lot of that work. So let's just call it from 18, okay? From 18... To now, I'm 30 years old. From 18 to now, that's 20 years, okay? That would be 87,600 workable hours for me in my life, period. This is how much time in my 20 years from being 18 years old that I've had to do something with. So why, why is, what's the point with all this? What does it matter? Jesus is saying there is not. There is not an unlimited amount of time for you to get the work for the gospel done. You don't have an eternity. You don't have unlimited time to get work done here on this earth. That's what he's saying. There's not an an unlimited amount of hours 
to do what God has called us to do. And so catch this here. Instead of worrying, instead of worrying about the dangers ahead of, ahead of them in Judea, instead of worrying about, like he said in Matthew chapter 6, where they're going to get food and where they're going to sleep, instead of worrying, all that is secondary to the mission. He's saying, why? Because if I spend one hour worrying, Jesus says, then I can't add a cubit of measure to my stature. I get nothing from worry. I waste time worrying. I waste time doing anything other than going about doing the will of God the Father. And what is the will of God the Father? To seek and to save those who are lost. And how did he show us to do that? To love God, to love others and make disciples. How much time are we investing doing the mission? With the hours you have left in life. Listen, you could leave right now today and you could get hit by a car and die and you only have one hour left in life. You could live for 30 more years. You could live for two more years. We're not promised that. But what we are promised is that there is a mission to handle. And the hours we have in the day, the 12 hours, the light that we have while we're in this life, there's a mission to accomplish and we can do that. We can spend time on the mission, can we not? Or we can spend time on ourselves. So which one are we going to do? And that's what Jesus is saying here. If we could adopt this way of thinking and this understanding, can you imagine what can be done for the kingdom of God? If, if I spent more time, if I spent more time edifying God through sharing the gospel than I did edifying myself and making myself better, what could, what could God accomplish through that? And I think it's a real question we have to ask ourselves today, 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 am I building my kingdom or am I building God's kingdom? Because let me tell you what building my kingdom looks like. It looks real good on paper that I'm saving money for retirement and I'm making sure that my kids have everything they need. And I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm pushing all the other stuff, the time I have to complete the mission kind of on the back burner because I need, to, I need to make sure all these things go according to plan. I need to build my business, and I need to build myself up, and I need to make sure I don't, I don't have time to be doing a whole lot of other things, but, you know, I have time for that. I have time to, to make sure that, that this, whoever I am, whoever I want to be, is going to be successful, right? We've got all the time in the world for that. We carve out time. We carve out time to be successful and to do things in this life for what? And Jesus is saying, hey, Listen up, disciples, you only got so much time to be on this earth. And no matter what comes your way, whether it's certainty of death, whether it's persecution, no matter what, you should be about the mission. You should be so devoted to the mission that everything else falls in the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth place. That when I look at situations in my life, is this good for me? Is this good for my family? I think the mission first. Is it good for the mission? Because what's good for the mission will eventually be good for my family. Amen? Why? Because your kids are watching every move you make. And if they don't see you sold out to the mission for Jesus Christ, they're not going to either. I just read this thing on uh, Facebook the other day. This guy put out, like, if you don't raise your kids in church, what makes you think they're going to want to go to church, you know, when they're older? And I was like, that's, that's actually kind of inaccurate. What does it matter if they go to church or not? If you're not living your life sold out for Jesus Christ, then they're not going to either. I don't care how much church you go to. Because you can live one way in here this morning and live a totally different way on Monday morning, and a lot of us do. I mean, is that coming through this morning? Like, do we understand what Jesus is trying to teach this morning? That there is work to be done and there is no denying the fact that we understand this as a church. Jesus said, the fields are white and the laborers are few. There's work to be done and nobody to do the work. How devoted are we to the mission? How many workable hours of time do we have left on this earth are we, con are we spending to complete the mission? Is it one hour of church? Is it two hours of church because you go to Sunday school? Is it three hours of church because you come to equip class? Can I say something without offending too many people this morning? Us coming to church is not the mission. I'm sorry. 
us coming to church is not the mission. Coming to church is being equipped for the mission. Let me clarify something first, um, that this service is not church, okay? This service here is not church. Church, as it is defined in the Bible, is living in Christ-centered community in which we are equipped to fulfill and complete the mission. In other words, although it is very productive for us to be here, the one to two to three hours you give here is not the mission. That's not the mission. The mission is out there. The mission is how much time do we devote outside of these walls to complete what God has called us to do. Because the last time I checked, nobody in here ever witnessed to anybody else during the service. And maybe you did, and, and so forgive me for that. But the, the, the point is, we come, we sit, we listen, we enjoy, but we, we become equipped with the word of God and what God wants us to do, so that way, when you're at work next week, you can be effective for the mission. That as Daniel has said, you're not a refinery worker, you're a worker for the mission, and everybody there is a mission field. You're not a vet tech. You're not an employee of wherever you work. You are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the mission comes first. Because God should be glorified. Amen? But what we've done is we've kind of we've turned it around. We've said, yeah, yeah. I spend, I come to every time the church doors are open. And that's, that's my, you know, that's where I fulfill my hours of service. That's not the point here. That's not what's going on. So how devoted are we? That's the question. How devoted are we? Are we willing to sacrifice our life here on earth for it? When they come calling, are we willing to sacrifice our life for it? And before you say amen, before you say amen, do you really think you would give up your life for the mission if you won't talk to your neighbor about Jesus Christ for the mission. Because as it stands right now, I can go talk to my neighbor freely and nothing stops me from it. Do you really think that once the cops come and say, you, you know, you're going to be persecuted for your faith, you're going to say, yeah, sign me up. Because I believe. We don't really believe if we're not completing the mission. We don't really believe if we're not completing the mission. Why? Because then we wouldn't be able to stop the mission if we really bought into it. Okay. It's the, it's the most cliche thing in the world. If I had the cure for cancer, please get it out there. And so that's the case here, is that Jesus is giving everything up for the mission. Everything. He's heading to certain death. His best friend's dead. And he's, heading, he's, he's focused on the mission. Not about anything else around him, but about the mission. Down in verse 15, he says something very interesting. Uh, he says, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. And he's essentially saying, I'm glad Lazarus is dead. That's exactly what he's saying. I'm glad Lazarus died because now you're going to see the glory of God and you're going to get the mission. Please don't say that if I die, if you're my friend, like... Yes, Jesus, Julian died. Let's, you, God glorified. No, 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 don't do that. But this is what Jesus said. He said, I'm glad Lazarus died because now you're going to get the mission. And Thomas, that's right, the same Thomas. What do you know Thomas for this morning? Doubting Thomas, right? Old Thomas wouldn't believe until he stuck his finger in the hand and, you know, on the side. And that's how we understand Thomas. But Thomas gets it right here in verse 16. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. Now there's this, you know, I guess extra biblical understanding that maybe, um, maybe Thomas looked a lot like Jesus. A lot of scholars believe that. And so <laughs> who are they looking for? They're looking for Jesus. And Thomas, you might think, is like, whoa, hold on. Uh, if I walk in first, they're going to get me, you know. But that's not what he's saying here. That's not what Thomas is saying. Look at what he says. He says we. He doesn't say me. 
Then Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let's go so that we may die with him. What is Thomas getting here? Thomas is getting that death, if that is required, sign us up and let's go. He understands that Jesus is walking into enemy territory. He's walking into where people want to literally hurl humongous rocks at them. And he says, if that's what it's going to take, if it's going to take death, if it's going to take walking into harm's way, let's do it. Let's just go die with him because this guy is the Messiah. Because this guy has it right. Because this guy is totally devoted to the mission that God sent him on. Sign me up is what Thomas is saying. And Thomas died later. Thomas was martyred. And so are we getting that this morning? How devoted are we in here this morning? All of us here at Fellowship, are we devoted enough to stop spending our time building our kingdoms, doing the things that satisfy our flesh, doing the things that, that you know, get us ahead in life, or are we spending time devoted to the mission of Jesus Christ? And that the relationships I build are going to glorify God. And that the job I choose is going to eventually glorify God. And that the position I run to is the mission. Because a few short months later, Jesus would die on a cross. That's where the mission led him. And 11, 12 of the disciples died martyrdom. Because that's what the mission called for. So this morning, this morning, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to be a witness and to make disciples and to move in 2021. And the only way anything at all is going to be done about that is if we're devoted to the mission. Now, we can have all the events we can think of, right? We can have Passion Week. We can do the laundromat. We can... Do all the stuff. But if you're not devoted, if you're not devoted, God receives no glory. You and I. I'll go with you, standing with you, arm in arm. You want to go do laundromat? I'll go with you. You want to go hand out cards in Passion Week? I'll go with you. You want me to come with you to talk to your neighbor about Jesus Christ? I'll come with you. Let's be devoted to the mission together. Let's be devoted all the way, all the way to death, all the way to certain death. Let's do that because that's what it's going to take. I wasn't going to talk about this this morning, but I just, I think it's relevant. There's a lot of people really upset or scared about this Equality Act. I don't know if you've heard about it that's being, trying to be passed. And it would essentially really bring down some heat on churches and places of worship and stuff like that. And I follow a lot of pastors on Facebook and, you know, there's this real effort to be like, no, you know, like we can't, you know. But sometimes I feel like we're trying to run away from danger because the mission, and we use the mission as an excuse to run away from the danger. But do you realize that danger is going to come? Jesus said that. Jesus said, if they, if they persecuted me, they will, in fact, persecute you. Paul said, if you're going to sign up to be a Christian, then you're signing up to be persecuted. It's coming. Okay, it's coming. You and I will experience that. I firmly believe that. We can, you know, debate about it all you want, but I firmly believe that. And so how devoted to the mission are we going to be when we can no longer worship freely, when we can no longer witness freely? That's a problem if we don't witness now, freely, with nobody stopping you. Devotion to the mission requires sacrifice. And God receiving glory, no matter how it comes, is what should be our first priority. Devoted to the mission. Go ahead and stand. Every head bowed. Every eye closed. The band's going to come up. and I mean, just like every other Sunday, we're going to sing a song and we're going to give you an opportunity to to come and these altars are open and we want you to come and to pray and to, you know, if you have questions to ask. But this morning, you know, whether you come down to the altar or not, I want us to really think and consider how devoted we are to the mission. 
I'm not talking about how many scripture verses you share on Facebook or, you know, any of that stuff. Just because we call ourselves devoted Christians doesn't mean that we are. Because if our actions don't line up with what we claim to be, then that's not what we are. But you have the opportunity this morning to change that. You have the opportunity this morning to start anew. You have the opportunity this morning that if you don't talk to your neighbors about Jesus, you can today, tomorrow, and the next day. You have the opportunity that if you've been building your own kingdom, you can stop today. And you can start building your kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Is that difficult? Yeah, it's real difficult. Because it affects how we live our lives and it should. If we want to be devoted to the mission, truly devoted to the mission, running into danger if necessary, doing what God has called us to do, this impossible mission as it may seem, and it's going to take your devotion. It's going to take everything you have. You have to be all in or nothing. You can't do it halfway. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for who you are. We thank you. We thank you for the example of Jesus here in John chapter 11. That the resources you gave Jesus, that all the things that Jesus had and experienced here on this earth, we also have too. And we thank you for the mission, God, that you have entrusted us to take your word to people who need it, God, because there are people who are dying every day and going to hell. And I don't say that lightly. And so, Father, we thank you for these things that you've given us. And I pray this morning that we as fellowship, that we as a congregation, that we as a Christ-centered community would come together and that we would be devoted to that mission. That, that you would move through us, God. That we would have revival in our own hearts first and that we would go out because people are dying and going to hell. And that we would give your message because we're devoted to the mission, no matter how that affects our lives here on earth. Because we know that even if we die physically, that we will live forever spiritually in you. But on this earth, help us, God. Help us. Please help us to be devoted to the mission. so much for listening and we always welcome you to join us at fellowship church in nederland texas where we gather grow give and go